like my shelf of shame, I'm going to mm. estimate because I'm not near my collection. Wait, you get it's not a countable number. <laughs> you have to estimate. <laughs> it's a big shelf, is what I'm hearing. Welcome to the Impromptu Board Gaming Podcast. Today we have a little change in format. We're going to be doing a mailbag episode where we just answer questions from the audience. Let's go straight into the questions. David asks, Andrew, you seem to be the co-op player of the panel. I just started to introduce my game group to co-op games. We've played Hanabi, Just One, and of course, Pandemic. Uh, can, can you give a few suggestions or uh, recommendations for co-op games that steadily increase in complexity to get my group ready for a game like Spirit Island? Alrighty. Oh. Hmm. Great question, David. Uh, hmm. Okay, so... Based on, oh man, my mind jumps all over the place, and actually my co-op knowledge, I was trying to think of, you know, I was trying to answer this question, I was thinking of co-op games, and uh, my knowledge, it probably isn't as big as I'd like it to be, but that's okay. So, I think for steadily increase in complexity, if y'all were a fan of Pandemic, I'd recommend another co-op game by the same designer, called Forbidden Sky. Oh, for the Forbidden series, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, so that's that's the first one. I, I was just thinking if I wanted to describe it or not. But um, there's a cool little bit there, so it's probably similar in game length to Pandemic, maybe a bit longer. Um, the neat thing here is you're sort of going to be physically building a circuit as you play the board game. And um, so yeah, that's one cool thing. And the other part of, the, part of it is that you're building the board as you play. So that can be, that's a, not always a standard experience for board games, so that could be pretty cool for y'all. After that... This is where I struggle, the sort of next step, the sort of like in-between step between uh, Forbidden Sky and then a bigger one like Spirit Island. The one that comes to mind that I think is not as often talked about and is worth checking out is The Big Book of Madness. You're wizard students in wizard school, and you've stumbled upon this sort of forbidden book, you've opened it, and now things are falling apart, and you have to find a way to sort of beat back the big baddies coming out of it and close the book before your whole school gets torn apart. Yeah, so that one I think is a really nice stepping stone because now each person has a more sort of like unique character with their own sort of special powers. You'll see a little bit of that pandemic forbidden sky, but I think this takes it to another level. There's there's definitely neat uh, cooperative elements there as, as you like learn new spells and you have to like time the spells well and stuff. Um, there's cool stuff there. Oh, I do remember that from uh, Spirit Island too. Yeah. Yeah, good call. Good call. Yeah. So then after Big Book of Madness, I was kind of thinking you could jump straight to Spirit Island from there. One potential in-between step would be Aeon's End, if you like deck-building games like Dominion. But honestly, at that point, Aeon's End is already big and and complicated. It feels like a similar scale to Spirit Island, such that I think you could go straight to Spirit Island from Big Book of Madness. Aeon's End, as it is a deck-builder, is probably a bit more familiar and more will feel more intuitive and easier for you to pick up if you are familiar with deck building games like Dominion or Clank. But it is a sort of very grim atmosphere. And I'd say the sort of big differentiator, right, Aeon's End is this, it's its grim atmosphere and it's really about you sort of overcoming the challenge. Where Spirit Island, you're really sort of like embodying this this guardian spirit. Because in Spirit Island, the, the characters you play as these spirits, the, the top down, the thematic design is very, very strong and very cool. 
And Spirit Island has a, some different play patterns, a different feel of playing patterns in terms of like, there are these fast and slow powers, which like the timing element is not something you see often as well. I remember that. But really, I, I think, yeah, I, I think that would, that would be it. <laughs> for Bin Sky, Big Book of Madness, and then from there, you're probably good enough for Spirit Island. In some, in some cases, you could just go straight into Spirit Island, as long as everyone knows that it's going to be a bit longer and more complicated of a game than y'all are used to. Yeah, good point. I think, yeah, part of it, and this goes for, like, most games, you're just trying to teach your gaming group, like, new mechanics, different ways things could work, different ways, you know, you know, just how the game could possibly um, unfold. So the real thing is about, A, holding their attention so that when you introduce something as complicated as Spirit Island, like, they don't feel overwhelmed. Yeah. So, you know, a way to do that could be through IPs or stuff like that. Just holding people's attention, I mean. So, like, Marvel United is a pretty fun one. It introduces deck building, and it's at least something your group's probably going to be familiar with that IP. Uh, one I liked, and um, one of the co-op games I'll, I'll play is Nemesis, and that's sort of a almost a direct port from Aliens. So if you're into Aliens, you could... Uh, and that one's pretty complicated. The one caveat is it's kind of expensive and it's a big investment. So you really want to be relatively sure your group's into it before you actually invest in it. Because, yeah, that game is expensive. So It's even easily available. You got it from a Kickstarter, right? Yeah, I did get it from a Kickstarter. Um, there's actually a new Kickstarter coming up for uh, different aliens for the game oh wow so yeah they'll be obviously selling the uh the base game again and then you you can pick it up i'm there are definitely places i've seen it in retail stores too it's findable it's just an expensive game so okay you listed three games here what was it just one uh hanabi and pandemic so you know it seems clear you know your group pretty well you're ramping them up slowly on relatively easy games to much more complicated games. So, you know, just see what your group is interested in, I would say. Like, um, is it going to be, like, something IP-ish with, like, Star Wars or Marvel? Or is it going to be something, just something more mechanically driven? A couple other quick notes. Um, since, David, y'all, your group has enjoyed Hanabi and Just One, I'd highly recommend checking out Letter Jam, which is a word game in the vein of Just One. It's a cooperative word game, Just One, but it has this sort of Hanabi-style mechanic where, um, so you're trying to sort of guess the guess the letter, guess the word, you know, figure something out. Um, the letter you're trying to guess is sort of facing away from you, kind of like the way you hold cards in Hanabi. You're facing away from you, so all your teammates see what's going on, and you're trying to figure out what you have in your hand. So I'd highly recommend I'd highly recommend Letter Jam. It's very cool. I think that's a great recommendation too. Plus, it's mechanically simple, so it can be like a warm-up game to lead into something more complicated, or a cool-down game, or an hour or less left in the night, and you want to play something to really kind of like cool off the um, and take it take it easy from something so heavy. And Letter Jam's a great recommend there. And then the last thing regarding to Spirit Island, there is a product, I think it's called Horizons of Spirit Island, something like that. It's meant to be a much like a simpler and easier way to get into Spirit Island itself. 
So if if complexity is an issue, I I might consider starting that. And it's going to be a cheaper investment. It's it's a whole game. Like it is the Spirit Island game, just with a much simpler set of spirits to streamline that process of learning the game. Horizons. Oh, I haven't even heard of that one. It's like a prequel or a, just a streamlined version. I think it's a streamlined version, and I think you can get it at Target. It was like something weird and special with that, and I think it's. Only like thirty to forty dollars, as opposed to like sixty plus for the base game. So, oh, okay, cheaper investment, smoother process, easier to get new people on board. Okay, yeah, that's that sounds perfect. I mean, thematically appropriate, and it'll help you sort of set up to teach for the tougher game, and then is yeah, right in there. So, Horizon, yeah, like like if you learn how to play Horizon Spirit Island, you know how to play the game. You know how to play Spirit Island. Oh, okay. Maybe that's your game. <laughs> that's that's David's game. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, coincidentally, David also asked Paul. You said you like deduction in games, but you don't like deduction games. This seems to be a weird distinction. Can you elaborate? Okay, I have said both. I do have a couple of hangups with deduction games. For a deduction game to be good, it needs to really organize the information the player is using really well so for example um mystery of the abbey is a game that does this really well it has a very simple sheet with all the suspects oh nice you can just cross them off as you go along and you can just concentrate on playing the game and making deductions i mean that's where the fun is and that's really where the focus should be a game that really doesn't do this well was sleuth so this is an older game, and I think it's had multiple editions. So I think later editions, they did actually come out with a um, a cheat sheet, an organized table to actually, you know, organize the information. But the edition I played just gave you a piece of paper, and it was just up to the players to organize the information the as best they could. So playing it was just a chore and the thing that really bothers me is when a game does it right and then another game just does the exact same thing badly i mean think about it if you're designing a deduction game like one of the most basic things you can do is play other deduction games and see what they did well and see what they did badly and then, you know, use their good ideas, hopefully improve on their bad ideas. So really, it can really come down to implementation. Okay. A smooth, well-organized game is always going to be a sloppy or at the very least bare bones kind of game. It really doesn't facilitate the organization of the information well for your players. I see. The second thing I don't like is the nature of hidden information in deduction games. It tends to make the game rather delicate. What I mean by this is, have you ever played a deduction game and you are asking the other players questions and someone just screws up? Maybe they just made a mistake or they misspoke or they thought they had one piece of information but they really didn't. And it, it could be an honest mistake but it kind of ruins the whole game. I mean, take a game like Alchemist. That is a really heavy, really tough game. 
and and that's fine. But if someone screws up, it can be pretty devastating to the entire group playing it. Right, given how heavy that game is, right, from what I've heard. And I really personally don't like that. Ooh, yeah. But, you know, if your game group never makes a mistake, I guess it's fine. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying, like, I've definitely played uh, deduction games where it's like, hey, wait, didn't I ask you this and you said this? And they're like, oh, shit, uh, sorry, I, I totally misspoke or messed that up. It's, and, you know, yeah, I'm not looking to get mad at anybody. But then, like, the game itself, if it's that fragile, then you're kind of screwed. Yeah, that's huge. Um, as far as, let's see, deduction in games. So, uh, what I like about that is, is, uh, there are definitely games like, uh, Dungeon Lords, for example, where you can look at someone else's board, see what they need, and make, uh, simple deductions as far as what actions they're going to go for and, and predict, you know, where they're going to place their, um, worker placement cards. And then you can sort of use that information to strategically play your own cards. So it's like that at least is a very like simple, just it gives you a little bit of an edge, not a very big one. And if you, you know, take little, little edges and add them up, it can be pretty big and significant throughout the whole game. So I like that in games where the game sets up situations where you can make simple logical deductions that give you a little more information to help you decide what to do that is uh, a much more appealing and enjoyable um situation or game mechanic or game state than okay the whole goal is to figure this thing out and there's at least thematically or whatever there's like that's the whole point i'm figuring this out and that in itself is the point of the game, as opposed to, hey, if I figure this out, this might score me a few more points, and that'll win me the game. Like, that second scenario, I enjoy much more in general. I mean, there's nothing wrong with deduction game. It's a perfectly legitimate genre of gaming. I've just had a few bad experiences with it, and I feel like I've seen it done well, so it really annoys me when I see it done poorly. So, like, you know, if a game gives you a nice sheet and it organizes the information you need to make deductions well, I'm like, okay, I can, I can play this game. But if they don't do that or they just go, hey, this is pretty free form. Good luck. You, you figured it out yourself. Then I'm like, uh, okay. You, you couldn't figure out a way to help your player out here? Because you're really making that initial barrier to entry, like, really high and not for a good reason. So... That's my opinion on it, um, or that's what I find is the the distinction between the two. Like, if a deduction game is done well, they organize the information in a way that's easily digestible for the player, great. I'm into that. I'll play that game. But if it's too freeform and it doesn't organize the information well, I really don't like that. And then if it's just a regular game, I like elements where you can look around at the board state or another player's uh, tableau and figure out, okay, this is probably what they're going to do. So I should do this in response and, or like play accordingly that I really enjoy games. And, and you know, it can't, it, it can't be too game breaking. Mm. If it's too game breaking, then I think someone, you know, capitalizes on the situation and someone else ultimately like 
uh, doesn't get to, so it's very like zero sum in that way. And I don't think that's an enjoyable experience for the whole group. Like someone's clearly coming out better than that. And as long as it doesn't happen too often, that's okay. Uh, but if it just creates situations that like isn't fun for everybody, then I'm not the biggest fan of that either. So uh, I hope that makes my position on that clear. Because I do think, you know, there are good deduction games that do it well. But there's, like, a lot that don't do it well, and that generally annoys me, so... It's interesting, when you mentioned your definition of, like, deduction in games that you like, that sounds a lot just like the sort of player interaction that happens in a lot of games, I imagine. Especially, I guess, the more Euro-type games. So they're just games that I think do it better by giving you the right amount of information. So what that means is... Th there's some games that give you just all the information, and then you just crunching numbers at that point. And then there are some games that just gives you very little information, so you have nothing to go on. So the right amount is obviously somewhere in between, where you have just enough to make a few logical conclusions. To go back to Dungeon Lords, each player gets eight cards, representing the eight possible actions. Two of the eight cards are always locked, and face up for everyone to see. Each player is going to choose three action cards out of the six they have available to them, and the three you choose must go into slots A, B, and C. What's in slot A gets placed first, what's in slot B gets placed second, and what's in slot C gets placed third. On every action space, there are three available spots, and the second action space in general, is the best. It just has the most efficient payout for rewards versus resources. You can also look at every player's tableau to see what resources they need, try to guess what actions they're going to take. And you already know that the second action space is the best space and incentivized for everyone. So that's a lot of good information to make a pretty fair educated guess, but you still don't know exactly which slot each player is going to play their action cards in. Cool. cool. If it's just a perfect information game, you're just number crunching there. But if it's like no information, then then you're just sort of blind guessing, which also uh, isn't fun. So you want somewhere in the middle, and you want there to be some variability where it gives the other players have a chance to surprise you, which can be fun in and of itself. And it also gives you the chance to guess exactly right. And when you make that, you know, exact right deduction, that feels really good too. So I think you can have fun with like sort of both sides of being right and wrong, which is tough to pull off, right? I mean, that's just, yeah, giving the right amount of information to pull that off is really, it's a tough, it's tough in games. I think it also goes towards like um, how auction games sort of fail. If what you're bidding on is worth the same to everybody and it's a very static and easy to calculate amount then how much you should bid for it is just very mathematically based mm -hmm. but if the lots you're bidding on are of different values slightly different values to everybody then what everyone's going to bid is going to be a little variable because they're not going to bid this much if it's not worth it for them. And, and you know, they want that real bad, so I'm, they're definitely going to bid at least this much. You can make those little deductions, and that's, I think, really fun. But if you were, like, 
no one knows how much money anyone has, and you have no idea how how good this lot is for them, then you're completely blind bidding. It's a very delicate balance that some designers do really well, others designers do less well, and then sometimes, you know, you're just guessing, and then you hit the right balance, and sometimes you don't hit the right balance. So I think, yeah, that's just where a lot of playtesting has to come through, and then you have to, like, figure it out. It's It's weird. It's a weird balance because... You don't want the game to be too predictable, and you don't want the game to be too unpredictable. And that's really a, like, just a tough balance to find for any given game. Yeah, it is. Based on everything you, you know, based on everything you've said and what I know about you, like, this does explain why you, like, Not Alone so much, I think. It's part of it, anyways. Yeah, Not Alone is a particularly well-designed game, in my opinion. Yeah, I, th I think <laughs> everyone who plays it will agree that there's, like, multiple reasons, yeah. It's a super easy to teach. The decision tree is really simple. And then, but there's like the possibilities as you go through get smaller and smaller. So it becomes easier for one side to predict you as the game progresses. So it's about the individual um, players sort of trying to outguess the other guy, uh, get through, and... Um, When's the right time to reclaim cards? I mean, those are just all interesting questions. Um, but then it's hard to do that and be easy to teach because, I mean, it just offers a really great balance of some information, but not all the information. And the fact that as the game goes on, you're more likely to get caught. So it, it steadily increases the tension of the game, which I think is also just critical and brilliant design overall. So there's like, there's a sense of progression, because the more you play, you're like, oh, he, he's totally going to be able to predict, you know, he has a one in five chance at the beginning of the game, and now he has a one in three chance of guessing what I'm going to do. And, you know, the fact that you go from one, one in five to one in four to one in three is just, there's a tension that builds there that's just great. It, it's so apparent, too, as you play. Yeah. It's just like, oh, I get it. Like, it is a very intuitive feeling game, I think. So, yeah, Not Alone. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to check that out, definitely go and check that out. Yeah, one thing, one of the reasons why I say it's well-designed is that it, it supports two to seven players, and it plays well at all numbers. Oh, yeah, that is rare. Right, you know, some, some board games, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, two to five, but it's actually only best at, like, two or, like, four or whatever. But this is a game... Two to seven players, which is one a bigger number than most games support, and it plays well at all numbers. I feel like that's a really, yeah, that's a really good point. Because I think most games in general are sort of designed for four players. And then once you have that core four-player experience sort of, like, honed, uh, well-designed, then they add things to expand it to the five-player count or reduce it to the two- or three-player count. Which can be, like, it just feels a little tacked on sometimes. I do like that uh, more sort of design and development companies are, like, keeping that in mind. And designing accordingly as you go. Gallus asks, David, in episode 3, Kingmaker, your hot take is just to do nothing. If that's the hot take, what's the non-hot take? So, let's back up a little bit. Uh... David, why don't you go ahead and restate your hot take for the audience, and we'll go from there. What I was trying to get at was the hot take for kingmaking is that whatever the player wants to do is fine. There's no like rules that 
a player needs to follow in terms of when they find themselves in a, in a kingmaking situation. And so the non-hot take would be essentially what most people feel like is the proper way to play. And so my point is, or my thought is, that players can play the game however they want, and there aren't like specific rules that you must follow uh, when playing. Now, this is just in terms of game mechanics and like playing in the game. I'm not saying, you know, like the so social rules, like being polite and you know that that kind of stuff, stuff outside the game. Those rules all still apply. But in the game, if you're in a situation where your actions might decide who's going to win, it, that's irrelevant. You play however you want, and whatever decision you make is, is fine. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, because we, we, we came up with like multiple reasons why of like possible scenarios and types of actions to take if you're in that king-making position, right? Like, do you... Go for your own personal high score? Do you just like take someone down for spite? Are you just, you know. So it makes sense that everyone would be different, and those are all valid, as you're saying. I thought the consensus we came to was of course, there's no like hard and fast set of rules. People do what they feel like they're going to do. I think the question here, though, is from the, uh, you know, given a, let's say, a four player game, one person is going to be in the king making position. The question comes from the other three players, I think, is what it is. And that is, whatever that one person decides, you're supposed to just be okay with it and ultimately just do nothing. I think that's the perspective of the question. Like, you're not supposed to respond or encourage or whatever, or you just, you do nothing. You let them make their choice, and then that's it. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So their question comes down to, what's the non-hot take? So if yours is the hot take, what's the non-hot take? Go ahead. The non-hot take is... Right. Okay, so yeah, if, if what you described, which is an interpretation of just do nothing, because it, it was unclear if it meant do nothing like in the game, like just pass your turn and just stay out of it, or, you know, what you said. And if, it's, if the interpretation of the question is what you said, the non-hot take is, in general, I feel like most players think that no matter what you should just do whatever you do whatever you can to maximize your score or put yourself in the best position possible which um which is also fine of course but i feel like if you want to take revenge on someone who wronged you earlier or if you just want to collect like kind of ignore your position and just do something cool or whatever your goal is in the game, or however you want to play, that's fine. It's not, you must just try to um, maximize your own position no matter what. Or that's how you should play. Okay, I hope you thought that was helpful, Gallus. It's, it's a very complicated topic, really. I wonder where Gallus is from. <gasps> Oh, maybe it's Hungary. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Some of the analytics have what country downloads these. Oh, cool. Oh, neat. Hungary, huh? Oh, yeah. Apparently, somebody from Hungary might have seen our podcast and downloaded it. All right. Well, 
Cool. Uh, good luck, Alice. I uh, hope that uh, informs your future K-making situations. All right. Uh, so those are all the sort of addressed to a specific person questions. Why don't we go through some of the um, everybody questions? So Stephanie asks, what game have you guys recorded the most plays for? Uh, if it's not the same game, what game have you guys logged the most hours for? Okay. Uh, Andrew, you, you want to take that one? Hmm. Yeah, I think for me it's pretty... Uh, well, it depends what you consider, I guess. Um, but I think for modern board games, it'd either be Great Western Trail or Spirit Island. Okay. Oh, wow. I just remember, like, two very distinct periods of just, like, me and my playgroup, like, specifically playing that game, like, quite often. And obviously each each playthrough of that game is, like, fairly long as well, so, and I'm a... Yeah, yeah. I was surprised when you said that, because, like, those are two longer games. Yeah. Do you feel like you have, like, a more hours logged in one or the other? More and more of the... Oh, wait. Why don't we start with, um, I guess Great Western Trail is, what... 90 minutes to two hours, depending on how well the people know the game. Yeah, and some of the folks I play with are on the slower side, so it's closer to, like, three for, like, a four-player game. But it, it, it really depends, right? Like, I've played this with, like, multiple groups of friends. I've been lucky enough that, you know, multiple friends enjoyed the game, so... And, like, same with Spirit Island in that regard. Spirit Island, you would say, averages around three hours? Oh, Spirit Island is probably, like, one and a half to two? Again, depends on player count and familiarity and whatever else. Okay. I remember, I think the first game is longer, because you're learning it. Mm -hmm. But after that, and everyone gets in the rhythm, it does move pretty quickly. Yeah. But the nice thing about Spirit Island is that right, you can sort of adjust the difficulty as you want, adjust the difficulty and complexity as you want. So... Oh, okay. Both of those, yeah, both of those games have very long teaches. Yeah, that too. Um, Great Western Trail usually takes me like twenty minutes to half an hour, and Spirit Island is about the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh man, I've had some rough teaches for Great Western Trail, like really rough. It's not easy. <laughs> There's a lot of parts. It really comes together like as you play, but it does come together, and you know, I think it's a fantastic game. That's me. Right, do, you have a, do you have a guess or a sense of like how many plays you would give each one? Or are you one of those play recorders? I am not one of those play recorders. I'd guess close to 50 for each. 50 for each. Wow, that's, that is a good number. That's a lot. Yeah, the question is, um, for me, the question is not, I guess, valid in a sense, because I'm not really a play recorder. I'd have to kind of guess. But... Guessing is kind of fun, because for me, recording the most plays, it's really like, there's been a lot of games that either myself or my playgroup has just religiously, not religiously, fanatically played, like, constantly for at least, like, a month or even, like, a summer. Um, and so you can kind of go through a lot of different games. It's kind of like a timeline of my gaming history. Um, so early on... I definitely played a lot of chess, and I believe that counts. Sure, there's a board game geek entry for that. When you're in like a chess club playing for several years, going to tournaments, you play a lot of chess. I have no idea how many times I've played. A lot of blitz, that kind of stuff. Oh, hundreds then, right? Um, certainly, yeah. There was one summer where two of my friends and I would just play... Uh, Settlers of Catan, Cities and Knights, like almost every day. In person? In person. 
This is long. This is like 20. This is in the 90s. Well, late 90s. Catan came out in 95. So the Cities and Nights come out in the 90s? I think it's early 2000s. Yeah. Maybe early 2000s. Whenever Cities and Nights came out, we kind of played it quite a lot. Probably over a thousand hours, to be honest. Over a thousand hours. So it's like, is that over a thousand plays? Or around a thousand plays? No, a play would take like 90 minutes or so. Okay. You guys are screaming at each other trying to trade for a while? Yes. We made some incredibly creative trades over time. <laughs> Got really creative. Even even trades that lasted over to the next game and stuff like that. Wow, that's extreme futures trading. Yeah, it got it got pretty intense. We were we were way ahead of our time. You funny enough now you mentioned it, like me and some of my friends had a settlers of Catan phase as well. And then I don't know if this counts, but I was really big into Magic the Gathering for a long while. And okay, and then other games just come to mind like short games that people are like in a session, especially when they first came out and it was so new that people would play like like eight or nine times in a row because there took like fifteen minutes. Um, definitely make this list. So the first game that comes to mind is definitely Dominion. When that game came out, people were playing it all the time and then constantly playing like over and over again, like four or five times in a row every time they played. Another game was um, Race, for the, Race for the Galaxy. That game is just... Yeah, you can just rapid-fire that game as well. It was a lot of fun. So stuff like that. I'd, I'd say nothing recently has kind of caught fire like those games did back in the day so those would be my answers pretty much in order it was like chess sellers of Catan cities and knights race for the galaxy and dominion yes or dominion and the race for the galaxy i think dominion came out first no no race came out first oh race came out first okay dominion was 2008 and, and race was dominion was 2008 sorry race was earlier than that yeah, race was two thousand seven. Oh, okay. It's possible. It's possible I played Dominion first, but either way, about the same time. So. See, mine probably gonna be well. Okay, if we're going by uh, David's method, I definitely was a big Go player when I was a kid. So I learned it when I was eleven. Oh wow! Or earlier. 11 or early, I think 11 years old was when I was first taking a class for it. And I learned how to play before that. And we kind of played like not seriously. And then uh, I saw the class for it and I signed up for that. Played Go well until adulthood. Uh, so there's probably yeah, hundreds of plays at least. Awesome. I don't know about thousands, but definitely hundreds of plays. And a game would last couple hours honestly so you can go ahead and double the uh, hours count on <laughs> from plays and sometimes longer especially in like just tougher games i did uh record plays for a while uh number one's gonna be teach you that makes sense with over 400 plays jeez and then haunted teutonica's second with 130 plays and te teacher's not a short game the, uh, well, usually, I guess you could theoretically you could end it in like three hands, I guess, but that's pretty wild. Those would be my two. Okay, and then yeah, I think those would cover our wise as well. Yeah. 
Next question. Here we go. Philip. Philip. Philippe. 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 I think that's that's probably Felipe. Felipe could be Felipe. Okay, Felipe. Uh, are you guys pretty into crowdfunding? Uh, any projects yet to be fulfilled? I definitely went through a crowdfunding phase. So I got a few games from crowdfunding. I could take a look at my collection. I remember um, a friend got me Alien Frontiers as a gift. So that would be sort of the among the first ones. And then uh, I have Clans of Caledonia, which was a pretty big one as well. Let's see, what else? Yeah, I have a few. You guys have a few? I had a few. Yeah, like you, I also, I think all of us that were around when Kickstarter started going nuts. Right around Alien Frontiers, I guess. That was the first regarded successful Kickstarter for board games, I think. Yeah, back then, oh, you could get really addicted to just backing projects, and then they arrive, and you're like, well, and then you play them. But, just like many things in board gaming, it got way oversaturated, and there were a lot of shady Kickstarters, a lot of unfulfilled, or just games that didn't live up to the hype, or just were clearly unfinished, perhaps. But yeah, you can, I think there's threads on all kinds of pitfalls and, sh- and shady things that happened in crowdfunding over the years. It became pretty standard practice that Kickstarters would not fulfill on time. Yes, that's that's true. I mean, I think the joke also became like um, they would be late three to six months, and then after a while, it was over a year. <laughs> what became like a, a not unheard of standard? It was yeah, it got pretty bad. Yeah, then the then the pandemic happened. The Suez Canal. The Suez Canal happened. <laughs> a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff happened, and so yeah, I've I'm pretty much it's it it's very rare for me nowadays to do anything crowdfunding. There's two reasons for that. One is everything I just said. I'm just more wary of it, and I can wait. I don't need to back stuff and lose track of it. And second, I actually I work at a board game cafe, and I can use their ordering system to buy games and it's pretty and most of the time i can get stuff that inv- like if, if it's not an independent publisher if it's like a crown footed from a more reputable publisher i can usually just get the all the game with all the fixings the retail version at some point yeah yeah oh no even better than the re- like it'll be like the kickstarter version i mean the yeah the kickstarter version generally goes to retail too but not not yeah but not always i have done a couple recently and I'll probably will again. One is for one is for Splatter. I got Horseless Carriage. I haven't played the physical copy, but that's but I have played it online. Yeah, um, I almost did Weather Machine too. That's Lacerda's. But stuff like that, heavy games from super reputable publishers that have or or designers that have constantly put great care into their games. There's only a few designers that have really earned that. Just if there are names on it, I'm interested in buying it. And one of them is is Splatter. Oh wow! Okay, I just realized I can go to my Kickstarter account and look. So yeah, I was I did that. I don't have any Kickstarters currently, so I've I have officially kicked the habit. Although for another question later, uh, there's another habit I haven't kicked yet. So stay tuned for what that is. <laughs> 
Andrew, Andrew, where are you on Kickstarters? I think I was late to the party. For all the reasons David said, it's generally something I don't do much, generally speaking. But I have backed a few projects. Um, there's the Everdell Spirecrest expansion. Nice. It was like pretty soon after I first got Everdell and played, and I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I saw the expansions like, hmm, nice. It's like one thing, right, like that makes it easy for me to decide what to buy or not. I think I generally have a pretty good sense of what I want and whether I think I have a good sense of whether this will be like be fun for me and if I will get like a meaningful amount of plays with my group or whatever. So that Everdell Spirecrest expansion, that was one. Um, there's another game called Bullet, which I thought was a pretty unique and cool concept, so I went for it. Wait, is that is that Bullet Heart? Bullet Heart, yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. So I thought that was cool and I was very glad I picked it up. And there's one really big one I'm waiting on right now, which is the Divinity Original Sin board game. Oh. Nice. So yeah, based off of the, the video game series, um, this one's hilarious. It's a little over three years late because they went over through a huge design rehaul, like partway through. <laughs> oh, nice. But it'll finally be coming in late November when, ha- when I, I'll happen to be out of town. So then I'll have to wait with my friends to actually try it. But yeah, that's the big one. Again, generally not a huge fan, but every now and then be like, hmm, okay. And then that happened to be one of the big ones. It was around the time we got into the, me and my, my friend, we were both playing the, the, the video game a lot. It was just like, why not? This sounds awesome. Um, so hopefully it is. I also play the video game a lot. I, I really hope it's good. And if uh, I'd like to try it with you when it gets, whenever you get it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. My friend and we sort of, we went uh, 50-50 on it. So chances are I have more time than she does. So I didn't get, I didn't get it because I was traumatized by the Witcher board game. Ooh. Which turned out like i love the game and the, the franchise is cool but the board game is awful oh no is that the new one the recent one or is that a different one no it's not it's not recent as of 2023 it was it was it was several years ago but it had ignacy trepacek's name on it and so i'm like oh this is gonna be cool no it was it was terrible <laughs> and <laughs> not cool oh that's so sad yeah unfortunate say levy and that's why I don't crowdfund anymore. Yeah, I think you guys are right. Like, there's very little incentive to crowdfund these days. Either, um, like, because crowdfunding itself is still taking a risk. You don't, you're, you're kind of betting on it's going to be good, you're purchasing it, and then uh, whether or not it's good is, is a big question mark. And hopefully it is, but uh, I think we've all had experiences where it's really not. And then if it's really good and it's really that good and you want it, it'll probably go to retail. So if it does, I mean, you can definitely pick up something. You might pay a little more for it, but ultimately I think you save money by not investing in projects that are not good, right? I'd rather pay more for a game I really want than buy three games and then two out of the three I kind of so-so on and then only one of them being like one I really enjoy. So I don't mind paying a little extra if it gets to retail and say, okay, this is really popular, it's really well-received and it's done well you could definitely buy things through what the cafe and you can get it for at um wholesale and you know i i definitely go to the cafe as well so you can play all the games in the library so if they get the game then there's no real need to buy your own copy you can just play it at the library so like the the barrier like there are just so many things (laughs) that just incentivize me to not 
invest in Kickstarters because it's like you're taking the risk. Uh, there's no place to store all this stuff. And then if the board game cafe gets it anyway, you, know, uh, you get to try it before you actually buy anything. And if it's really that good, you'll it'll probably come out on retail and then you can get it anyway. So it has to fulfill a very like specific set of criteria to really tempt me into like, oh, okay, I might not see this later and I might actually want to invest in it now, which is pretty rare. I mean, for a game to be that specific. And then, yeah, how it fulfills is also very annoying. So so I definitely stay away. I might back one project a year, maybe. Yeah, that's about it. Like, I might buy one game a year. Uh, I, I just looked through my account. Oh, man, this is uh, a little embarrassing how much money I've blown on this stuff. Well, why don't we get to one, one of these other questions uh, by James? Sure. Do we have any games on our shelf of shame? And Paul, why don't you start? Oh, wow. I guess this is good to follow up after my Kickstarter uh, rant. <laughs> see, I have not played... I have a couple of games on my shelf of shame. I have not played uh, Black Rose War, which was supposed to be the Wiz War replacement. I have not played Knock Down the Board Game, which is this goofy dexterity game i thought looked pretty funny and is that it double checking double checking i think that's it those two i have not played i'm gonna double check my account and see if there's anything else i don't think so i kind of i'm trying i'm imagining you with a literal shelf of just two games on it I'm like that's very impressive to only have two games on your shelf of shame so funny enough, I I actually bought my the current shelves I use. I bought it on on Kickstarter. <laughs> so I fulfilled. What? No way. Uh, there's this uh, box throne company that was selling shelves, and they store the games horizontally instead of uh, Calyx shelves that store it kind of vertically. Uh huh. So I actually got that on Kickstarter, and it works great. It's a little on the expensive side, but it works fine. And then, yeah, those are pretty much the two games I have not actually played. Everything else I've played. Uh, what about you guys? Any <laughs> shame stuff on you guys' side? I'm hoping to hear more from your Kickstarter list, but... <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, sorry. I, I did miss that. I didn't answer the other part of the question. Do I have any projects on the um, on to come? I do have two. I have two. Uh, I have one from Mindclash called Septima. So that's like a new... Um, you can look it up on Kickstarter. It's called Septima. S-E-P-T-I-M-A. And a second one called Galactic Re- Renaissance. <laughs> that's it for me. Right, I'll let Andrew handle this one first. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, so real quick. Shelf of Shame. Is it just games that we haven't played? Or is it things that we bought and that we regretted? I think, I think it's just we own a copy and haven't played it at all. Okay. If it's that we haven't played at all, there are three games I got because a friend was moving and they were just trying to get rid of stuff. So I picked up three games for free. And I guess technically I actually just got a fourth one yesterday. But I didn't buy them. Oh, oh. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's true. I, I guess you shouldn't count Offshore because you just got that yesterday. No, sure, sure. Yeah, I, that wasn't... That was, yeah, but there's three games I, I picked up from my friend because he was trying to get rid of stuff but I haven't played those yet. But of all the games that I've bought, I have gone at least a couple plays in with each of them. Because again, I tend to be 
pretty astute about what I want and if I think it'll be worth it for me and my friends. And and my library's also a lot smaller. I got into this hobby a lot more recently than y'all. I only, I only have like 16 or so games in my collection. So you said none that you've purchased, which is a which is a really good habit. And then and three that you haven't purchased. So which three are those? Block by block, um, which I think was Kickstarter, funnily enough. That's a local, yeah. Um, and then Yomi and Dice Forge. Oh, y- Yomi, that's the deck one? Deck building one? Sorry, it's not deck building. Y- you just, each character has its own deck. Yeah. And yeah, I've I, I played that. Okay. Yeah, they just came out with a Yomi too. Oh, really? I think it's on early access in Steam. I don't know if there's a physical version of it. There probably is, but I haven't looked up. I haven't looked it up. Funny, but yeah, those are the three that I got, but I that are on my shelf that I haven't played yet. I think Yomi's a little tough. You have to. It's like two player, so you have to have somebody else that's kind of into it. And then if you've never played it, it's going to be a little bit of a tricky teach. Yeah, maybe. But the game is also very fast. Like it shouldn't take more than ten minutes. Yeah, the game's pretty fast. Yeah, this is true. Well, the thing about y- Yomi is, like, I feel like it's it's a great game if you're really into it. And then if you're really into it, it's really easy to teach, right? Generally, people who are excited about it be like, okay, this is how this works, this is how this works, this is really fun. Be great, blah, blah, blah. But then if, if you got it for free and then you didn't actually, like, you haven't played it before, then that enthusiasm's a little lost. And then the game as a whole becomes a little trickier to teach and get right the first couple times. And... Yeah, I definitely haven't played in a while, but, like, I do have friends who would definitely enjoy the concept. So the count is three for Andrew, sort of, and two for Paul. David, why don't you round this out? All right, so I alluded to this earlier, but... Oh, this is the other one on the list thing. <laughs> other question. The crowdfunding addiction has been kicked, but there is a shelf of shame addiction, sort of. There is a thrift store <laughs> addiction that has not been kicked. And this is just looking around, like you, like my shelf of shame. I'm gonna mm. estimate because I'm not near my collection. Wait, you get it's not a countable number. <laughs> <You have to> <laughs> That's it's a big shelf, is what I'm hearing. Well, I have to go count it. It's not. It's 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 a big. It's a big shelf, but it's also scattered because, like, I have games kind of just sitting in general sections or areas. And the biggest area is in a different room. I'm just in my room. So this is like a third of my collection or so. But even here, like overall... How big is your collection? I don't know that either. I'd have to go count it. Impressive. It's, it's, like, it's, it's impressive to most people, but to like us, because we know certain people like Brad, it's not that impressive. But there's got to be categories to the shelf of shame because there's... Um, first of all, games that are kind of recent that I just recently got... Well, technically, it would be on the shelf of shame. Uh, there's got to be some leeway, right? Like, you can't just expect to play a game right away. Okay. Let's say it's a game you've had for more than three months. More than. Right, okay. I don't remember when I got most of these games, because time is an illusion ever since the pandemic. But I'll, I'll let this slide. Second is games that are technically on my shelf of shame, but only because I haven't played my copy. I wouldn't count that. I think it, the implication is that you have the only copy available. Don't count that? Okay. Well, uh, there's, there's that implication. Like, 
there, yeah, there's the bought a game and never played it, but there's also like so in terms of like playing the game, yeah, you've played it. You just haven't played your copy, which is debatable because some people count the Shelf of Shame as just something that you paid money for and you haven't used. Right? So you regret buying it. No, no, it's up to you. it's up to interpretation. I'll exclude games that that I've played other people's copies, especially within the friend group, but I just haven't played my copy. And then um, I guess it was brought up earlier, but games that I've bought and that are on my shelf of shame that I regret, and ones that I don't. I don't really regret any of them, to be quite honest. But in terms of like, there's games I look at and it's like, why haven't I played that? And others like, I bought that and I didn't expect to get it played. I want to, but I don't. So I'll, I'll name a couple of those first. For example, I have uh, I got Antiquity. Oh, you got Antiquity? That's an old school splatter game. That's right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's going to be a, ch- a challenging sell to get people to play. I know, Rob, there's some people that really want to play it, but you have to get those specific people together. It's going to be a very long game. It's going to be a long teach, you know. So, you know, it, it's I, I didn't expect to definitely get this played or anything. Yeah, I've played it. It's good. Yeah. Antiquity is kind of rare. Um, it's splatter, you know. The, like, it's not the easiest to get, although it's not impossible or anything. And then there's other collector stuff like I got the Omega Virus. Oh, wow! You're really reaching back with that one. Yeah, it's an old school. It's the first game. I don't know if it's the first game. It's one of the popular games with the battery powered and it talks to you. Is it cooperative? I think it might be like the first cooperative. I think it's cooperative. Yeah, I think it might be one of the first cooperative games. Oh, it's cooperative. You're, it's not cooperative. Oh, you're racing to get off the the space station. It's not. It's not. Cooperative. Oh, okay. Everyone has the same goal, right. but you're not exactly cooperating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, in this category, all the uh, campaign games I got, which essentially got canceled out with the pandemic. It was much harder to meet people. You could play some online. And then, recently, all my campaign efforts or legacy efforts have gone to Frosthaven. So I don't play these other games. I have uh, Aeon's End Legacy, Clank Acquisition Incorporated. Oh, nice. That legacy. I have something called Legends of Trundvarg. I have Sleeping Gods. Oh, you have Sleeping Gods? I do, yeah. Wow, okay. Cause I haven't played it. There's a new Kickstarter coming out for that, like a sequel series or something? Oh, all right. Game. I'm not going to back it. So looking around the room, let me list some games that are on my shelf of shame here. Hostage Negotiator, Sniper Elite, the board game. Oh, you have Sniper Elite, okay. I do, and I want to play it. I love Hidden Movement, but I haven't. Deal with the Devil. Uh, several exit and unlock games, Raiders of Scythia, Bonfire, Katara. Oh, Bonfire, Raiders of Scythia. That sounds familiar too. Pickle, The Magnificent. Uh, what is that? Oh, Arkwright the card game. Arkwright the card game. Okay. Yeah, Acropolis. Uh, oh, I guess another category would be expansions. I, have, I haven't played, but I have played the base game. I have this. I have the Space Alert expansion. I have Root Expansion, Brussels 1897, Conspiracy, and Stop Thief, Millennium Blades. Millennium Blades, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I've heard, I've had so many people tell me I should play it. It's right there. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't played it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think you'd like it. It's like a simulation of a CCG kind of thing. It's- oh, hilarious. Right. Oh, I know all about it. I just haven't played it. Yeah. All right, uh, ready, set, bet, picture perfect, decorum. 
That was really big. Ready, set, bet was really big last year. Yeah, it's still big. You just need a lot of people shouting. Forged and Steel. I don't know that one. Oh man, that is like kind of a that's kind of a Grail game actually. It's like a collector's thing where it's one of those games where like if you're in the know, this is the heavy game to get. It was kind of like D Mocker way back in the day. Oh, you, are you a Euro? Are you a really really a modern board gamer? Have you played D Mocker? <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Anyway. Uh, let's see. Keeper, Key Flow, Rap Gods, Little Circuses, A World Without End, Monsterlands, Kingdom Rush, and Teletum. Kingdom Rush? Kingdom Rush. Did you get that from uh, Derek? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. You got it separately? Yeah. Funny. Because he had like a big like a really big set of that game and was selling it for a while. Yeah. So no... Th- some reason, yeah, at the cafe, there was a whole set of Kingdom Rushes with all the expansions. Someone bought the base game. So now we're just trying to sell the expansions. So funny. <laughs> and they were there for a very long time. That's hilarious. Anyway, I saw the, I saw the baseboard game at a, at a thrift store. And I really do like the game. Kingdom Rush, it's a very fun tower defense game on the computer. I think you can get it on your phone, too. And yeah, and then uh, Red Cathedral's over there. Wow! So you have like a couple dozen then. Yeah, I'd say that. All right. <laughs> and that's just that's just in this room. <laughs> wow. Okay. Big shelf for David. Then. Yeah, I might as well. My whole collection's a shelf of shame, really. All right, uh, James. If your shelf is smaller than a few dozen, then I guess you're doing better than David. All right, what do we move on to Ranbauer? Ranbauer. Let's see. In our game group, we have uh, we have what's called a once-a-year game. Uh, these are generally games that are too long to play regularly. Do you guys have some of these? Oh, sure. Uh, anyone want to go first on that one? Sounds like you got an idea, Paul. I mean, I can go first, too. Um, essentially, I think this game just boils down to games that require planning to play. As opposed to just, you know, you can just randomly. I think the biggest one is definitely, and you, we, we just played this recently, actually, because our friend Rob set it up. But it, it's it's Twilight Pyramid 4, yeah. Oh, uh, TI4. This, this is probably the general answer to this game. Although I know there's definitely some groups that play it like once a week or even more than that. Once a week? But it's still like, probably like in high school or when you actually have time to do that. But yeah, you know, like it's but it's still it's still on a schedule. It's not like let's just randomly play Twilight Imperium 4 whenever we feel like it. Back in the day, we used to play a game about once a year. It's usually for someone's birthday. And it's a game called Advanced Civ or Advanced Civilization. Oh, yeah, yeah, I played Advanced. And that game I, the box, I think the box says it takes 8 8 hours. Um that's a lie. It takes usually 12 hours, 10, 14, 16 hours-ish. It takes a long time. There's a lot, a lot of negotiation, a lot of, a lot of weird, yeah. And so it's, 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 it's an event. You had to plan it, um, reserve some space, get some food, get to have some breaks uh, scheduled in there. <laughs> all, all the fixings, and yeah. Right. And so, yeah, so the timeline of that game, there was Civilization, then they made Advanced Civilization, which uh, added more players, added a bigger map. And um, now, if anyone's ever inclined, they made a version called Mega Civilization, which goes up to 18 players. 18? 18, yes. 
They don't call it mega for nothing. Holy crap. <laughs> and yes, and takes about the same amount of time. There's a lot of the game that's simultaneous, so in general, 18 doesn't increase the, the time that much, but when you're talking like 12 hours, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> wow. But yeah, that's 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 definitely where I, where I'd lean to. Advanced Civilization, even though I haven't we don't really play it anymore. That's that's <laughs> definitely a once a year game. I played Advanced It definitely is. That that there's this really f- funny thing about it where there's a there's a trading element. So um, so basically, you expand on this map, and if your territory gets enough people in it, you build a city, and then the number of cities controls how many um, how far up the commodity. So if you have like five cities, for example, you draw a one, a two, a three, a four, and a five commodity, and then. Um, those commodities basically you sell them for value to get um, to get more stuff, and the set collection element in that is like extreme, like it's exponential the way the the value goes up, and then so people really want that like the fifth card or the sixth card in the set, and people just get so intense about it they start screaming at each other over trades. Holy crap. To add an element of sort of like hilariousness, the designers threw in what's what are called calamities into the the cards you draw. So there there are things that happen to everyone or one person and then that person chooses a few things and they're just bad things that happen and you can trade them as commodity to another person. <laughs> and it's just it's hilarious. Some of the results of those trades, and it's just oh, so wow. brutal and so like so crazy. But yeah, that game takes a really long time. It's it, it's fun, but yeah, it's definitely a one-two game. It's so hilarious. Um, yeah, I have a couple too. Let's see, uh, StarCraft the the board game that was uh, that's like a four-hour game or more. Yeah, like, it's four more hours. Our favorite way to play was usually 2v2. I haven't seen you bust, I haven't seen you bust that out in a while. So, um, there are six sort of, um, yeah, there are three races, and every race has two factions. And then uh, we pick, uh, I have played at six players, don't do that. Uh, so we played at four players, where everybody takes one faction, and then you team up 2v2, so it's kind of clear which way you're working together and playing, and then you fight, and hopefully do well. It's, it's, yeah, it should be noted that um, Star- the game is out of print, Yeah, but, yeah. but it was re-implemented by a game called Forbidden Stars, which is now also out of print. Yeah, I mean... Um, I didn't honestly like Forbidden Stars as much. I mean, it does a couple of things better, but yeah, I didn't like it as much. But I, that's just me personally. But, yeah, yeah, I like that. Ver- I like that version more. But this is a discussion for another time. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, I have uh, Star Trek Ascendancy. So th- that's a fun one. Uh, it's three players, but you could play more with if you just uh, buy the expansion packs for other uh, races in the game. But that takes a long time and needs a lot of table space. Oh, I have Samurai Swords. Samurai Swords. That's generally... I think we usually play that five-player. And that takes, like, uh, four or five hours as well. Oh, and Rising Sun. I That was one of the Kickstarters I, I did uh, support. It was very expensive. Has a lot of fun miniatures. And uh, I've only played it, like, twice. 
but it was pretty good. Uh, I liked it. And uh, yeah, I think those would round out my once a year games. I, I don't really have any. I honestly, my once a year at this point, it's not in terms of length, but just like what kind of slightly different game or like unexpected game would people want to play. And so I think block by block might be the closest. because I think that one's a pretty heavier, longer co-op game. So people would be on board with that in theory. I think people like the theme, I think people like the co-op, but I haven't actually played a full game myself. I think I tried it briefly, you know, when they were doing their Kickstarter stuff. But yeah, I think I think Block by Block would be the closest one for me. I definitely do not have anything on that grand scale. Maybe, honestly, maybe potentially uh, Divinity, because that's going to be a campaign-based game. And uh... Are, Is each session that long? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, usually campaign games, like, it's long as in there are several sessions you need to play to finish it. But, like, each individual session isn't that long. But again, getting people together and stuff. I, I, there was one that, um, when I was with one of my friends, um, Descent. Oh, Descent. That would have been the okay. once a year one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, with with campaign games, usually the individual sessions aren't very long, maybe an hour, like Pandemic. But because of the commitment and the effort to get people together, yeah. usually people play like multiple sessions yeah. or multiple yeah days in the session. So then, then it takes like five, six hours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So yeah, those are our event event games. Oh, and uh, Diplomacy. I don't own that one, but I have played that, and that takes like eight eight to twelve hours. Oftentimes, yes. <laughs> eight to tw- like that's that's a short game of Diplomacy. <laughs> <laughs> I've only heard. I've I've seen Diplomacy games take several days. Woo! Oh, okay. I mean, if you're playing it online, I guess you can do that. Then it's like several weeks or several months. No, it was it was in person. Oh, several days in person. Yeah, it's, it's usually if you're at like a retreat or like a vacation or something, a place where people don't go home and then have to come back. They abandon the game for like you know twelve hours and then come back to it, play like four or five, etc. It's it's pretty specific because you have to lead the board state as is and or record it. It's not terribly it's not terribly hard to record it if um take a couple pictures. It should be doable. All right, and our final question, since we're skipping around, Tim asks, I like direct conflict games, but I'm not a fan of a lot of dice chucking. Uh, Can you guys recommend direct conflict games with non-dice combat systems? Yes, I can. Uh, So I guess it sort of depends on necessarily what you mean by direct conflict, but there's some card-based ones I really enjoy. The one I mentioned earlier is Yomi. That That could qualify. So the, the idea with Yomi, it's, it's meant to be like the, uh, the fighting game genre of video games. Um, you're two characters, and you're, you're punching each other and trying to do cool combos and stuff like that. There's one, I think, that maybe does it a little bit better, which is the Exceed fighting system. Oh, okay. I don't know this one. In the Exceed fighting system, it adds like a little bit of movement, so you're actually like, moving around. Yomi, you can think of it as like rock, paper, scissors-esque in ways, but then along with that sort of combo element. Whereas Exceed incorporates that bit of movement, where so you have two characters on a line and you're moving around, and depending on your range, that tells you like what you can actually do and whatnot. After that, I would then recommend it's the Power Rangers deck building game. Oh, nice! Which I think is a really, really cool deck builder with an element of sort of direct competition. So, right in a, in a more traditional deck builder like Dominion, everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. Clank takes it a step further, where everyone's sort of on the same map, and you, you're sort of running around, racing around to 
to grab this treasure and you can see where people are. But in the Power Rangers deck building game, you are sort of directly fighting each other in a lot of ways, not just the sort of more literal like attacking and defending from the, like the card abilities you acquire during the deck building process, but even during the, the actual deck building. Um, so one innovation they did in the, in the sort of market row where you buy cards. Um, so you're either a hero, i.e. one Power Rangers or a villain. And some of the cards are going to be hero only or villain only. And so if you're a villain, you can't buy hero cards. If you're a hero, you can't buy villain cards, right? However, you can battle them and sort of deny them and take away that option from your opponent while also getting some sort of bonus benefit as well. So you're sort of very directly engaging with each other in, in a lot of fronts. And even the deck building, I think they do really well in that there's a surprising number of very exciting and tough decisions on your very first turn, which I think is pretty uncommon. And again, comparing to like Dominion and Clank, that's less of a thing. Your first turn is pretty straightforward, generally speaking, I think, in those games. Not so much in, in, in the Power Rangers deck building game. Uh, David, do you want to chime in here? Yeah, sure. I've been doing, while Andrew was talking, I was doing like kind of a quick search to kind of go over things like this. What I've kind of come down to is, depends on what you mean by direct conflict, right? A lot of games that involve area control are direct conflict because you're trying to be first or as close to, yeah, barely in second or get, it's very dependent on what, how much your opponent has in there, you know, but you're not really battling exactly, but there's definitely direct conflict. And a game like that, I really like for a number of years, is just Wallenstein or Shogun. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, and that that one you conflict by dumping cubes in a tower, so that's that's hilarious. But yeah, okay. But if you want combat, I got that. Uh, Through the Ages is one of my favorite games of all time. I think it's my number one. Ooh. And that has a card-based um, battle and war system. It's more like you're comparing military value to military value, right? But then, then some classic ones. I would recommend something like I like uh, Blood Rage, Blood Rising Sun, and uh, Onk. They're all really good and they have a... Eric Lang's uh, area majority games. Yeah, they have a lot of direct conflict. Although it's more area control. It's not like I have my massive army going up against your massive army. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. If you want a war game like a battle versus battle without dice, um, they tend to be more focused on the area majority rather than one army killing off another army on a battlefield. All right. Right off my top five list, I would go with Kemet. So basically, um, everybody gets the same set of cards to start with, and there are various values. You, uh, Your army goes into another space, you guys fight, and then your army's uh, base number is just based on how many troops you have in there, and that's your starting point. Then each player, blind bidding style, puts in a, a card face down, and then uh, you can also play uh, which bonus cards you're, you intend to use in the combat. Then you flip them over and you just add up your values and see who has um, the bigger value. And then there's usually a second number, which indicates how much damage you inflict on the other side and how many of their troops die. So usually the default's like one, and then there can be bonuses that give you more, more hits. And depending on what bonus cards each player plays, the winner of the combat may suffer more losses than the loser of the combat. And and then the whole thing in Kemet is about drafting powers that turn into uh, strong combos to do whatever you're trying to do. So Kemet's uh, a really big one for me. Uh, I recently, a uh, recent Kickstarter that fulfilled for me was uh, Yucatan. It's from the same uh, designer as Kemet. And it kind of does Kemet, but like 
faster and more streamlined, and I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, if you can't find Kemet, you can find Yukata. <laughs> yeah, you can find Yukatan. Yukatan, sorry. Yukata's a website. It does uh, a similar thing in that you reveal cards, but the cards you reveal are generally get more varied because you're forced to continuously draw new cards from uh, the combat deck. So everyone starts with a uh, again uh, the same five cards, but then and and one card is reusable. So no matter what, you'll have one card at least. But if everybody just knows what value it is, it's going to put you at a sizable disadvantage. So you're incentivized to continuously draw new cards because every time you use a combat card, you have to throw it away. So in order to keep some mystery and some, uh, I guess what, unknowns in combat to surprise your enemy, you have to keep drawing cards, which is interesting. And then the cards provide bonuses. The bonuses can be uh, about taking prisoners from the other side. And that's ultimately what Yucatan is about. You want to collect as many prisoners from the other side and sacrifice them to gain points, because that's the main way you get points. So you need to fight, you need to capture, and you need to sacrifice them <laughs> to gain a lot of points. Winning the combat is important too, but it's almost secondary to just like gaining prisoners or gaining sacrifices. Generally, winning combat just gets you a better shot at getting more resources that lets you do more, which is, which is good. But you could definitely have situations where the loser of the combat comes out better because they had more bonuses to capture sacrifices from the, from the winner of the combat. And I, I like that, that type of variability where it is not obvious who, like who's coming out better in the exchange. So th those are two sort of direct conflict games that don't use dice that uh, I really enjoyed. Cool. Enough, my, my two Shelf of Shame games, I think, are uh, direct conflict games. Black Rose War and Knockdown are both uh, direct conflict games that I hope are good <laughs> when I eventually play them. Yeah, there's also uh, Wiz War. So Wiz War is much more... Wiz is a card system, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's much lighter. It's much, like, for fun and not to be taken... Like, it's more whimsical, I guess. It's not really something you take super seriously. And it uses a really uh, massive card system with a big deck. I find it a little swingy with the uh, the energy cards because the energy cards just are extremely advantageous if you if you're the one to draw them. So, but as long as you don't take the game too seriously, I think Wiz War can be fun too. So there's no. Um, I'm trying to look it up on Board Game Geeks Advanced Search. There's no direct conflict under mechanic or or category or subdomain. Yeah, I think the question is just. You know, he said a specific thing, which is like combat system. So it implies that there, it's a, it's talking about a game with a combat system. Yes. Well, there is a category, interestingly enough, called card-based combat resolution. Sure. And the top games there, Gloomhaven, which is cooperative, but you didn't say direct conflicts amongst each other. You can direct conflict against the game. Dune Imperium, which is an interesting choice. Oh, okay. I mean, that's like an area majority. It's. It's yeah, it's a sub it's a subsection of the game, but the game is excellent and there's no dice. So that may be something you're interested in. Scythe's combat combat resolution is just pick a number on a di on a dial and that's how much you spend, but it's it's still winner take all, so how much do you spend? Has anyone played Oathsworn? Yes. I recently started a campaign on uh, TTS with 
some folks. Oh, cool. How is how is the battle system in that? So this it's a cooperative campaign type game. To the best of my knowledge, that's how we're playing it, anyways. Um, the combat is pretty cool. It has some unique stuff going, but I don't think it's as relevant for the direct conflict. I don't think it's relevant for the question, but there's definitely some neat stuff going on there. Sure. So okay, I haven't played it. I've heard. I have. I've just heard of it, and it seems to be this big battle skirmish game, but it doesn't have dice, according to Board Game Geek, and it's called um, Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea. I think that's a 4X game, which you know can have conflict. A lot of the conflict usually has dice, but if this one doesn't, then yeah, I guess it qualifies. It's not listed on Board Game Geek. Yeah, it's by Scott Almas. It's it's kind of a he does like the tiny games, right? Who? This, I think this is one of his first games where, and a lot of his tiny games are very combative, like not like war, like armies fighting, but like it, direct interaction. Like you will definitely mess with other people when you play. And Heroes of Land, Air, and Sea, I think it was his, really one of his first big games, and it was pretty highly rated when it came out. But I've never played it myself. However, it might be something, Tim. This might be something you may want to look into. Okay. About uh, two games that came to mind. Over the course of the discussion, uh, one is a, is a game I haven't played myself. <laughs> it was one I sort of briefly looked at on Kickstarter, uh, but it's called Senjutsu, and it's like you're two like samurai swordsmen, etc., trying to duel it out. So you're moving people along a little hex grid. It's, you're moving your your person on a hex grid board, trying to fight the other person. And I, from what I remember, the play works. It's simultaneous play, so you both play like a card face down. Once you're ready, you reveal, and stuff happens. So multiple things that made this neat. One is that the direction your character is facing is important. And so like if you move away, then you're facing away. And so you have to do something to be able to then like turn around and stuff. It's like facing matters. And then there's a, a really neat timing element too. So it's like if you're trying to defend your against an opponent's attack, you first have to like correctly predict that they're going to attack, as well as there's a bonus if you can get the sort of the exact timing of the card. So the idea is that on each card play there's a timing or like some sort of like speed factor and whoever you know goes first wins or whatever. Um, or then there's some sort of tiebreak. But like for a defensive thing, um, there's bonuses if you can match the timing up with your opponent's attack, which I thought was pretty cool as well. The other game that came to mind is an old classic, Go! And that, that, that one, the, sort of the amount of conflict can vary a lot. It's sort of ultimately a, a sort of area control type game. But one way to, to potentially go about sort of acquiring claiming area is by through conflict and sort of capturing your opponent's stones. And no dice involved there whatsoever. Yes, perfect information. All right, I uh, hope that answers your questions, Tim. I think that's all we have for this go-around of the mailbag. Well, well hang on a sec. Uh, during, during this time, since the Shelf of Shame question, I found, there's this, I found a bag with some games in it that I forgot about. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and there's a tiny epic western. I want to play that. There's this game called yeah Three Sisters and uh, Mask Men. I do not know Mask Men. Oh, it's really cool. It's a trick-taking game, or it's like a shedding game. We're trying to get rid of your cards, kind of like teach you, except uh, all the cards are just uh, a, a mask, like a color, like you know red, green, blue. And what happens is, uh, let's say I play red. There's no value to red. It's just one red, and you can beat it with any color on your turn. But when you do. We arrange the mass to show... Let's say you beat it with green. We arrange the mass to show that green is more powerful than red. Oh, okay. So you're defining what is what. Right. Yeah, that rule applies for the rest of the, the, the round. The hand. The hand, right. And then later, maybe I play blue and Andrew beats it with purple. Now purple is higher than blue. 
but we don't know if those two are higher than red and green or not until that's that conflict is broken. And you can always beat you can always beat one person with two and so on. But you're not allowed to do that, like gang up on people, I guess, until there is a known factor in their strength. Oh, that's cool. Right. So so in this example where I forget what we did, but if green is higher than red, then and I play one red, you cannot beat it with two green. You have to beat it with one green. Yeah, unless their strength is defined. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, no, the game's really so the the powers of the cards are defined during the hand. Yeah, it's a really cool game. Uh, so if you win with it, do you? you mu- I'm guessing you have to go first in the next hand, next play. I mean, it's it's just like any like shedding game. You just keep going until everybody passes, and then whoever plays the last thing gets to lead whatever they want. Interesting. Yeah, we'll try it sometime. It's a, it's a quick game. It's a it's an oink game. Oh, okay. That's really quick then. Or those are generally pretty small and quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. Anyway, I just thought uh, I'd add it in while while it was relevant. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, yeah. We love questions. Yeah, thank you very much for asking. The questions are fun, so please keep them coming. That brings our first mailbag episode to an end. Please keep those questions coming in. I wanted to thank everyone who sent in questions. If you have comments, suggestions for the show, you can reach us at impromptuboardgamingpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, impromptu board gaming podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time.